The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the threat level is, is now only from rockets from the sky. There's no battleships to the south, and there's no tank army to the to the east that is barreling down the city. So as of eight, ten days ago, the, the, the local military district and, and the governor and the mayor, they basically said this isn't going to be happening anytime soon. Now, this isn't to say that it can't happen. It's entirely possible that the, that the Russians do much better than expected in, in the Donbass. And then they break through and they blitz through Nikolaev and they start uh, surrounding Odessa again. And that is within the realm of possibility, but doesn't look likely now. And it won't happen for another month, for a month and a half, if it does. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 26, 2022. Vladislav Davidson is a journalist and author. He is a New Yorker, a Parisian, and he is an Odessa resident. He's the author of From Odessa with Love, Political and Literary Essays in Post-Soviet Ukraine, And he joined me in the virtual jungle studio from Odessa, where he is covering the war. It's a wide-ranging conversation about the course of the war, the state of life in Odessa today, and the current state of Ukrainian politics. We talked about how the war is really going. We talked about myths and facts about denazification of Ukraine and we talked about what Ukraine will look like as a political society when the war is over. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 26th. Vladislav Davidson with a dispatch from Odessa. Vlad, why don't you start by telling us where you are and what on earth you're doing there? I am in Ukraine, which I have been covering for many years as a Russia-Ukraine-Belarus expert, as a, as a Eastern European correspondent. I am in Odessa, which is my hometown here, my adopted hometown here, and the, the city where I uh, have uh, spent a, a lot of time. And I've spent three years here editing a magazine and doing various sorts of things. So there's a war going on, clearly. And... Uh, it's it's a very nasty situation, and as of uh, just a few days ago, there was a missile strike here from the Russians. The Russian army shot 
five or six rockets into Ukraine, and a few of them actually got past the anti-air defenses, and they hit a residential area, basically uh, the boonies in town, not quite the suburbs, but, uh, you know, a, a place where people live, normal lives, uh, far away from the city center, and it killed seven, eight people, wounded dozens more, and uh, liquidated the most beautiful family, three generations of women, a grandmother, a, a beautiful young mother, and her three-month-old daughter. So you are, before we get to the situation in Odessa, I just want to orient people about who you are. You're a longtime uh, Eastern Europe journalist and sort of resident part-time of Odessa. Who were you there covering the war for? So I'm a, I'm a non-resident fellow of the Atlantic Council. I, I'm here mostly with Tablet Magazine, who's European culture correspondent I, uh, I am. I also write a, kind of a weekly piece for the New York Post, because they're great and fun. And I, I write high-end stuff for Foreign Policy Magazine and, and Bulwark and, and uh, various publications unheard. I write for all sorts of different places, but I, basically my, my home publication is Tablet Magazine, which is one of the best magazines in America, if not the best magazine in America at this point. But I, I write for, uh, I'm a gun for hire. So when we, you, when you and I last talked for the In Lieu of Fun show, you were still in New York. Then I, I think you were in Paris for a little while, and now you're back in Odessa. So Tell us about just a little bit about your activity between the beginning of the war and now. You've kind of hopped around a fair bit. Yes, that's true. I, I've spent 40 days of the last 60, more or less, of the war here and three weeks before the war here in Ukraine. So I, I was sitting all of February in Kiev waiting for the war to start from February 9th or 10th onwards, about two weeks be, uh, before we were waiting for it to start. Then I was covering it up to uh, mid-March from Ukraine. Then I got my own family out mid-March to France from, through, through Romania. I, I, I uh, spent a, a week recovering from five weeks of, uh, of brutality, as one does, without sleeping and working five weeks in a row. You know, I was still writing and covering stuff, but I took a week off for, for uh, you know, uh, not going crazy, as one does in war zones. It's okay. You know, people circulate. I came back... Uh, to Poland. I was there for the Biden speech. I crossed back into Lviv. I was in Lviv for a while. I came back to Poland. I covered the refugee crisis in Poland. There is a crisis of three million Ukrainians already in Poland. I came back to America to do some fundraising for a wonderful organization called Razom for Ukraine and to give some speeches just about what's going on, explain to people what's happening. Uh, I was uh, last week of March in in America, then I came back through France uh, into Moldova, uh, which is a, a little tiny state bordering the Odessa region in the south of Ukraine. I came back into Ukraine through Moldova, and I have been just trapezing around Ukraine for the last two two months. I've been most everywhere. So, talk about the situation in Odessa itself. As you mentioned, there was a major set of rocket attacks there, a quite lethal one uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, on the other hand, Odessa's a bit away from, a little bit away from the southern fighting and has been something of a refuge for a lot of internally displaced people. What is the, 
mood there? What is the sense of the safety of the city and how far away or close up does the war feel? Okay, so let's unpack all of that. First of all, I want to just make a slight correction. All the IDPs passing through uh, Odessa are subtly told by local volunteers and the government not to stay here. It's explained to them that in case of a real war situation, there will be millions more IDPs coming through this part of Ukraine, and it be it's better for them to go to Moldova or to Western Ukraine. They're told by, I, I just uh, uh, spoke to the mayor's head of volunteer uh, logistics and uh, humanitarian logistics. And uh, basically, they subtly tell people passing through that it's best not for them to stay because, uh, one, this could be a war situation. The, they're not safe here. Under under certain war scenarios, this, this city will be attacked again uh, with with uh, the Russian army uh, in full force. That That is the official stance of the Russian army, that they do want Odessa. They do, do want to keep Ukraine from having access to the sea. They would like it to be landlocked. They would love to just disconnect it from the water and to take all that territory along the Azov Sea and the Black Sea. So the local volunteers and the volunteer organizations, they discreetly ask, the vol they, they can't tell any Ukrainian citizen not to stay here, but they say, keep going to Western Ukraine, you'll be safer there, or go on to Moldova and to Europe, where, you, where you'll be better off. And are people mostly following that guidance uh, and using Odessa as a transit point, or are a lot of people staying? No, no. Nine, I was told nine out of ten uh, respect the, the request, and they just keep going to western Ukraine. Uh, so all the people from Kherson Oblast, all the people from Nikolaev, a lot of people from uh, Donetsk who do not go through the middle of the country, they go through the southern roads, which are hard to get through now because of the Russian occupation in, in, in Kherson, they wind up here before they have a decision. Do they keep going north and go up around to western Ukraine, or should they just keep going until they leave the country through the Romanian-Moldovan border? Most don't stay here. And the, the, city's, the city's kind of empty. I would say about two-thirds of the population are here, and about a third of the population is left. Although I've not been able to get statistics, and the people who do know those statistics aren't sharing them. That seems to be policy based on my conversations with people. It's very difficult to actually know how many people are left in Odessa. But for me, a long, a long time Odessa residents, obvious that some percentage of the population is left. I see. And among those who are there, you know, what is the mood like? Is it, I mean, among people who have stayed, there must be a, a real sense of defiance. Yeah, you know, Odessa's always had this kind of hedonistic lack of interest in the in the rest of the world so there's that aspect of a just the national character of the city but also there 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 is a lot of uh resilience and there is a lot of well a large chunk of a population who thinks i'm not leaving that said over the last 10 days since the moskva the russian battleship was sunk the actual threat level to odessa has gone down radically because the Black Sea fleet of the Russians is no longer within operational range of the coast. They can no longer land Marines off the coast, and they can no longer uh, send cruise missiles off the coast. They've figured out how far the, the missiles fly, and they've, they've steamed the entire Russian fleet away. So there are no Russians to the south, and the, uh, the Russian army, which is sitting in Transnistria, the breakaway little republic, not far from here, they are not invading as of yet. So they're just sitting quietly and telegraphing to Kiev and to uh, Kishinev that, that they don't want any part of this. 
that is the Transnistrian authorities. The, the Russians have 1,500, 2,000 troops there, as far as I know, a small contingent who would link up with the rest of the Russian army, which would come up through Nikolaev in order to besiege the port. But that's looking less and less likely. And the day after I arrived here on the 15th, it, it, it was obvious that day that the Russian battleship had sunk. The next day they started quietly dismantling the uh, the fortifications all across the city center. The sandbags, the anti-tank mines, the anti-tank, the big anti-tank uh, metal things, uh, I forget the name of them, the, the barrels, the, the fortifications, the barbed wire, they took all of that down by the start of this week. Do you interpret that as a kind of show of triumph or do you interpret that as a genuine sense that the risk assessment is that, you know, the threat from the Russians to Odessa right now is a missile threat uh, that anti-tank barriers and barbed wire won't help with? Yeah, that's exactly right. The the mayor, in fact, told me on Tuesday when I saw him. Uh, my my, uh, I'm here with a a wonderful journalist friend, David Patrikarakos, uh, a wonderful friend, Greek British journalist, uh, a British journalist of Greek descent. He he and I are traveling together. He's writing for Unheard. And I'm writing for Ever Places. And the mayor told us when we saw him uh, just five, uh, four or five days ago, that this was no longer a um, a major issue. The 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 possible infantry assault. They're, they're being held off at Nikolaev, and the Ukrainian army even seems to be able to take a counter uh, counterattack in uh, Kherson. So uh, sadly, the Russians have held on to their positions in, in Nikolaev, but the, they're not able to get over the river and to take those two bridges in order to go around the Ukrainian forces to, to besiege the city. So the threat level is now only from rockets from the sky. There's no battleships to the south, and there's no tank army to the to the east that is barreling down the city. So as of eight, ten days ago, the the, the local military district and, and the governor and the mayor, they basically said this isn't going to be happening anytime soon. Now, this isn't to say that it can't happen. It's entirely possible that the, that the Russians do much better than expected in, in the Donbass, and then they break through, and they blitz through Nikolaev, and they start uh, surrounding Odessa again. And that is within the realm of possibility, but doesn't look likely now. And it won't happen for another month, for a month and a half, if it does. So talk to me about the general situation. This is a long front now, but it's only one front. There's no northern attack, and we have quite differing accounts coming to the West about who's gaining territory, who's losing territory. Uh, how do you understand your best sense of how the war for the Donbass is going? Basically, the, the, both the Russians and the Ukrainians have announced publicly that the, that the Battle of the Donbass has begun. I'm not so sure that it has begun in full force. They are bombing Ukrainian positions, and they have had some moderate successes by they, I mean the Russians, in taking a few small towns, which are important, in, in the northeast of Donbass, around the Izum. They are fighting in Severodonetsk. They are fighting in small satellite towns like that that they need in order to push on other towns where you have rail connections. It, it is in the fog of war difficult to know how well they are doing. That's true. But it doesn't seem that the Russians have made any substantial gains. And it also doesn't seem 
like they've they put together all those battle groups that that they removed from uh, from the Kiev Oblast into into uh, Belarus t- back together. It doesn't seem that they put together the tactical maneuvering groups that they that they've been trying to rebuild. Their logistics is still shoddy. Their combined force maneuvering capacity still seems fairly well. Let's say poor, you know, for lack of you know lack of better words. And it it doesn't seem like that they've gone full in yet. Although I'm sure uh, being in the trenches right now in that part of Ukraine, it does seem that that things are hellish. But it, it doesn't seem that the Ukrainians are are getting the full brunt of it yet. And they they did uh, uh, make an announcement that south of here, 40 miles from where I am in, in Odessa, there's another port named the Yuzhny port, the southern port, uh, a little a little satellite port of Odessa. It does seem that they will be putting down chemical strikes based on their warnings that the Americans are going to have a false flag, quote-unquote false flag chemical strike in Yuzhny port. When the other journalists and I sit around the the, the bar in the hotel, just surreptitiously selling alcohol uh, against the law late into the evening. And of course, journalism is, uh, it's... Uh, fueled by alcohol. Yeah, fueled by alcohol. And how can you how can you be in a war zone without booze, the journalist asked. Uh, when, when we're surreptitiously sitting around drinking alcohol, uh, according to the curfew law, illegally, because no one's allowed to sell it after 3 p.m., uh, we, we do uh, ask ourselves... What are we going to do in case of a nuclear assault? What are we going to do in case of a chemical attack? How many of our colleagues actually have the chemical suits? I certainly don't. So your impression so far is that the the Russians have not made substantial progress across this front. Is this a situation in your judgment where if they're not winning, they're losing? Or is this a situation where... If the Ukrainians aren't driving them out, they're losing. Whose side is time on here? Uh, Look, time is most definitely on the side of the Ukrainians. And like any weaker party, they have been quite uh, understandably trading space territory for time. So they are doing that now, and they've even signaled to the Russians that they don't even care about negotiations anymore if they do uh, pass certain red lines. They're willing to they're willing to scupper negotiations if the Russians do certain things, because the longer this goes on, the worse it is for the Russians. Their rate of attrition of forces is and a te- technology is probably higher than the Ukrainians, although it's hard to say what the state of the Ukrainian army is. And it is obvious that the longer this goes on, the smaller the highest level of the demands of the of the Russian negotiation team will be. Is so the longer this goes on, the better it is for the Ukrainians, and they understand that very well now. They're just they're just driving down the clock. Over the weekend, we heard a lot about how the Ukrainians were finally uh, getting the weapons that they. Uh, had been seeking and that there was a kind of new understanding between the Ukrainians and the Americans. What do we know about this? And has the, in your conversations with Ukrainian officials, has the sort of tone of irritation at the pace of Western support uh, abated or is there still a lot of frustration? So Ukrainian officials have to be on their best behavior. They cannot actively criticize the Americans. They have to be very happy and grateful and uh, gracious for any 
small act of generosity, even when it is plainly not enough, even when they are plainly frustrated, which it happens, and they are more than happy to tell me that they're frustrated very much off the record, but they are unhappy to say it publicly because that would be very stupid, and they are not stupid. So the, the Ukrainians, depending on which situation they're in, they're in and how high level they are and how smart they are and how discreet they are, they will have different answers. And even sometimes in the same delegation, at the highest level, they will, they will say slightly different things. So I was in Warsaw having an off-the-record conversation, and I saw the defense minister of Ukraine and the foreign minister of Ukraine in the same one-hour period back-to-back. I was in the room of other people. It was a very discreet, very much off-the-record conversation. And without saying which of them said what, because, you know, I shouldn't do that and I shouldn't break their trust, people stop talking to you if you, if you uh, talk too much. One of those two gentlemen said one thing and the other one said something a bit different. Not radically different, but different enough that you could read between the lines. So even in the same delegation of people who are together seeing you at the same exact time and are coordinating their response and their message, they, they can say different things depending on how discreet they are and how frustrated they are. Maybe they had a bad night, maybe they're feeling in a bad mood, and they'll tell you honestly what they think. Do you think that's mostly because the message discipline isn't, you know, is the first thing to go in a, in a very tense situation? Or is there an element in which the Ukrainian government is kind of doing a good cop, bad cop thing where, you know, one official conveys the gratitude and another official conveys the irritation. How coordinated is the uncoordination? There are definitely people doing good cop and there are definitely people doing bad cop, but you can't be really, really too much of a bad cop because then you'll just start looking graceless and unworthy and you'll piss people off in the Biden administration and they'll 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 soft pedal the situation as it is. There are a lot of smart people all over the world, from Washington DC to Poland to Kiev to France, who see the Biden administration as essentially soft pedaling this, getting away with as much as they can, not going in full force. I mean they're they're doing a lot, but they're they're not doing as much as they, they could be, and they don't want to give certain weapon systems. And there's been a lot of frustration with the Biden administration not giving certain weapon systems. And, and also the, the, the line between what the Biden administration puts on the, on the offensive weapons list and on the defensive weapons list, it's very thin. And it's hard to say why one particular weapon system is considered to be defensive when the other weapon system is offensive. Obviously, in this situation, every weapon system is defensive because no one's going to be making, you know, a march on Moscow or Rostov or Rostov on Nadano or whatever. No one's going to be attacking Arkhangelsk with, with his weapon systems. So there, there is, to be honest, a lot of frustration here, and often they, they would, they, they could do a better job of hiding it. I think. So, when you travel, how? available is how much of the country to you. I, I, my impression is that most Western journalists are really holed up in uh, Lviv and, and Kiev uh, and not getting around more toward the front or the south. How available are the uh, hotter regions to you? 
Well, to me personally, less available because as you know, I'm, I used to be a Russian citizen and I burned my Russian passport. I cannot actually operate in talking to Russians. I can't get my papers looked at by, by Russians because I, I wouldn't do well in a filtration camp. Uh, I do get good access. I've also been here for a long time and I'm a native speaker and all this. And uh, I, I had a lot of contacts here before people parachuted in who are not really Eastern European experts. And it's a good thing that the entire world is here, but also, you know, it is sometimes frustrating to us that people who are not experts on the region, you know, pontificate uh, as if as if they they know things when those of us who spend our entire lives here uh, are more frustrated with particular things. You know, I do have access to mayors. I do have access to 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 military people. I have a deep bench of civil society people, parliamentarians that I, I, I socialized with before this happened. So I, I have better access than most people by far. You know, often I even get a little bit lazy talking to people that I've been, been known for a long time uh, because I know they're not going to say anything interesting so I don't even bother calling some of my contacts. I do get out to the front. I'm going to Dnipro the day after tomorrow for two days and I'm going to go to the very front line and see what's happening. Uh, Nikolaev going to, you know, it's kind of hard to get into the actual place where there's firing. If you actually hear the sniper rifles, you're far too close. You know, you shouldn't be right. more than 10, 12 kilometers. I mean, you know, even seven, eight kilometers is okay, but that's that's pretty close. I, I'm I'm quite comfortable with risk. A lot of people are not, but there there are gradations of of, of risk. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of, called people by name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed 
from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you mentioned that uh, it's frustrating to have people who have not spent time in the region who aren't speakers at all, let alone native speakers of Russian or Ukrainian, kind of parachute in and pontificate uh, what are some of the big themes that such people are uh, loosing on the world now that particularly frustrate you? What are, if there's one thing you could teach everybody who reports from Ukraine uh, during this war and drill out of them or drill into them? What are what are the themes that you would do that with? Yeah, I'm not. Re I'm not. I'm not re for for my many, 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 many sins. Envy, uh, envy generally isn't one of them. My many sins. My many character flaws. My many character flaws. Uh, uh, just ask my wife. Ask my lady. I'm a lot of fun, but my many, many character flaws do not, for the most part, 
uh, include envy. Uh, luckily for my spiritual situation, I'm just not an envy, I'm just not envy, an envious person. So I don't really care about the, half the world is chasing the story. It's good because I care about this country. I, I just wish that they were that they were a bit more cognizant of certain things and that they were more careful. I wish there would be le less loose-lipped stuff about about Azov or the the far right, quote unquote, or or neo-Nazis or anti-Semitism. I just wish there were a more nuanced understanding of the way that uh, nationalism and patriotism are different gradations of the same impulse. I wish that there were fewer people who uh, were saying s silly things about anti-Semitism and leave uh, historically as if, you know, I, I read just yesterday in Haaretz and made my hair stand, stand up on edge that uh, uh, Kiev Jews who took their uh, families to Lviv were in some sort of kind of dangerous situation. Come on. You know, obviously they, they took their family away from a dangerous situation, but there's no problem with anti-Semitism in Lviv. Uh, as if it's a problem. The far-right stuff, uh, it, it's become a kind of internal pastime for America's own political issues internally. Let's talk about that. There is, has been since Ukrainian independence, a fear in the West and in Russia of what people call Ukrainian nationalism, by which they mean some far-right neo-Nazi orientations that tend to flow from the alliance of convenience between Ukrainian, certain Ukrainian nationalist groups and the invading Nazis in the early 1940s. As best as I can tell, the evidence that there's actual neo-Nazi influence in the Ukrainian government is basically nil. But there does seem to be anxiety about uh, a particular contingent of the Ukrainian military called the Azov Battalion. First of all, correct anything that I've just said that's incorrect. And secondly, who is the Azov Battalion and how afraid should I be of it? It seems to be fighting the Russians in Mariupol, which seems like God's work to me. Yeah, yeah first of all... As, as a Ukrainian Jew, as a Russophone Jewish guy whose family is from here and cares about this country, I couldn't care less what kind of rune tattoos the, guy, the, the heroic guys with martial spirit, who are tough guys, who are fighting Russian invaders while they're protecting women and children in an Azov steel factory have. I couldn't care less. They could, they could believe in demons and ghosts and their pagan ancestors. And by the way, a lot of them do, some of them do, surely. So like, it doesn't matter. Like in the, in the middle of the worst kind of Russian bombing, uh, where you basically have a kind of fascist, neo, neo kind of fascist ideology, which, which uh, really does have aspects of, uh, of even though I, I hate the way uh, fascism just became a kind of cognate uh, word for the word evil in a, in a post-secular society, in the West, where where it's routinely thrown around stupidly, you know, Amer American politics has been drenched with accusations and stupid accusations and fake accusations of fascism, and has not done much good for the society or political discourse or uh, political taxonomy or anything. There's nothing good about that. But here, you really do have 
uh, real uh, fascism and you really do have some real version of a corporatist state with a corporatist economy, which is a totalitarian uh, political state, which is not really a theocracy because you know a, re a religious uh, dictatorship is different from fascism, which has probably on paper 12 or 14 aspects of fascism that it does fulfill. I mean, you know, that's important. I really don't like the way that th these very complex questions are adjudicated for internal American consumption, uh, uh, American kind of solipsistic internal politics. Americans do have a, and I am an American citizen, have a lovely way of making everything about themselves and of mirroring the world's problems uh, to think about their own often important and often unimportant parochial concerns. So that said, uh, you do have this uh, discourse of fascism and fighting fascism uh, being the pretext for blowing up a liberal democracy. So you have an army basically commanded by a kleptocratic, uh, unreformed Czechist who's basically a postmodern Bolshevik minus communist economics who has some sort of modern postmodern variant of fascism that is now uh, the uh, organizing principle of Russian society. And he's using uh, the discourse of fighting fascism to kill a, a bunch of Ukrainians who are not fascists, who are liberals, who are democratic, or who are just normal. So you, you, have, you have a bunch of people who are actual fascists accusing uh, people who are not fascists of fascism. That's important. It's important to understand that that the Ukrainians are uh, are victims uh, of a stupid discourse accusing them of fascism when they're not. You do have this one battalion, which used to be a brigade, which was founded originally 13, 14 years ago by a bunch of people with disparate political ideologies, some of whom, some small minority of whom, or some of whom were not the sorts of people that you would want to invite to dinner and had the kinds of tattoos that you would not want your uh, kids to get on them, right? Bilecki, Andrei Bilecki, the founder of this movement, uh, is kind of a neo-Nazi, and there, there, there are some amount of people in Ukraine who believe in blood soil nationalism. Are they the direct descendants of 1930s style integralist nationalism? No, they're not. Are they uh, looking back to the past to see heroes who fought, the, uh, fought the, the Russian occupiers and the Soviet occupiers? Yes, they are. Do they want to replicate the political ideology of those people? For the most part, no. They're just, you know, this is a heuristic for being a tough guy. Getting a, a wolf's angel tattoo is, is, is a way of signaling to your opponents that you are a tough guy and that you should not be screwed with. And I don't have a problem with that. So uh, politically speaking, Azov has been assimilated into the interior ministry. It is no longer a volunteer battalion. It is now commanded by uh, just ordinary army guys. It is a battalion that has not been politically cleansed of people with un unpleasant opinions. Uh, I don't know if anyone has a sociological analysis of what, what those what, what proportion of the people of the 2,500 guys in that battalion have those opinions. There is no racial litmus test for joining this battalion. I've known Ukrainian Muslims and Ukrainian Jews and Ukrainian Armenians and Georgians and Azeris, 
uh, of Turkic descent who have joined that battalion and fought. You, if, you, if you just scream uh, about Ukrainian being good and Ukrainian nationalism being good and wrap yourself in a yellow and blue flag, uh, whatever, whatever color you are, you can join the Azov battalion and you can even speak Russian while you're killing Russian army guys. So it, it is not a racialist battalion. It is political ideology is not a priori racialist. It is not uh, even a battalion that has an integrated political ontology or political uh, ideology. But is it full of kind of tough right-wing guys with big guns and big biceps and big tattoos? Absolutely. And right now what it's doing is defending the remnants of, of Mariupol, right? Yep. Uh, they're defending the they're defending the remnants of a Russian speaking city as ninety percent of that Russian speaking's population has been killed, wounded, displaced, whatever. Uh, the, there are t tens of thousands of dead civilians. The worst things that you could possibly think of have happened in in Mariupol. It is a city in Europe that has been decimated, a city of half a million people, a thriving little port town that has been destroyed from the face of the world uh, of the earth. And whoever is defending it against Russian military barbarism, I don't care what they believe at this point. They're heroes. So a couple of years ago, when Zelensky was elected, we had this sense of a massive political shift going on in Ukraine. You know, first starting in 2013-14 from, you know, the sort of clientelist a uh, Russian uh, kleptocrat to, you know, the Poroshenko domestic Ukrainian plutocrat. And then from there to the kind of anti-corruption reformism of Zelensky. And I'm interested, and there was definitely with respect to both Poroshenko and Zelensky, who were, of course, political enemies, a definite sense of a Western tilt, Western-leaning tilt, and a move away from Russia and toward the West. I'm curious now what the political fault lines are within Ukraine, or are there basically no Ukrainian politics in the context of this war? There's everybody's sort of on the same side of everything. What are the issues that at this point divide Ukrainians? Yeah, that's great. Basically, it is correct that, that politics, for the most part, with a small p, has been canceled for the duration of the war. Everyone watches the same exact television program. All six major television stations are, collaborate on one nightly TV emission. They all take turns producing the same uh, program. They all watch the same, everyone watches the same TV, and all, all the major political parties which each have their own, uh, and every oligarch has their own big TV station, they all collaborate on TV programming. So every citizen of Ukraine, when they turn on Ukrainian television, they watch the same exact feed. And there, there are also both official and unofficial understandings that nobody is criticizing Zelensky in the middle of this war. And just to, just to be clear, that's, you're making that sound like a sort of patriotic energy, but you could also frame it in a very coercive way. Is Ukraine free or is it, or is there, you know, repression of people who are not towing the line? There, look, there, there, there have not been purges of the 40 odd 
pro-Russian or pro-Russian light or uh, pro-Ruski Mir MPs in parliament, with, with the exception of the ones who fled. Some of them have fled. Some of them have fled for Belarus. Some have fled to Europe. A lot of them went to Russia. The few that who still keep coming to work are not being purged. And I think it, it can't be more than a few uh, of, of those 40 because the, the Oplok people uh, fled before the war even started. They, they left the country a couple of days before. It was obvious that to, to people who were following what they were doing that, that, that the war was about to start because they just left the country and they didn't even vote. They didn't even vote uh, for the emergency uh, or against the emergency sanctions package uh, on the 24th and 25th. You know, the Ukrainians could, if they wanted to, do a lot more to get rid of the fifth column internally. They're not, they're not really doing that. They did capture Mintvichuk as he was trying to sneak out of a country, and he is now sitting in handcuffs, and he is an enemy of the state, even though he's one of the leaders of the opposition before this. But again, he is an enemy of the state, and he, and he should be traded to the Russians. And, and when, you, when you say enemy of the state, like what distinguishes him from... Uh, one of the dissidents that Putin has arrested. Why, why shouldn't we think of him as a dissident and political prisoner rather than as a, you know, legitimate captive? I mean, you, you, you're describing it as a good thing that he's in prison. We don't normally think of locking up your political enemies as a good thing. Why, so walk us through what is it about this guy that makes, that makes it different. He was a chief of staff to a, uh, to a, 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 pro, a pro-Russian president. After that, he was the representative of uh, Russian politics within the country, basically above the uh, ambassador. He was the guy being bandied about as the puppet leader if, if the Ukrainian state was uh, decapitated. He was being financed entirely by Russian money. He, his, the entirety of, uh, of his political war chest came basically through really dodgy uh, rents on Russian pipeline stuff and on, uh, uh, on Russian rents that have been revealed by Bellingcat and others. He was basically, he, he's also a, a family member of uh, Putin's family. He's, uh, Putin is the godfather to his, uh, his, his kid. Famously, everyone knows this. He is a representative of Putin within Russian politics. And he, he's been a representative of, uh, of the worst kind of Soviet politics in this country for a very long time. I mean, the, the great, the great poet Stus, who was uh, uh, destroyed by the Soviet state, a dissident in the 80s. His court appointed uh, a lawyer who, when the Soviet system wanted to destroy him was Medvedchuk 40 years ago. Medvedchuk was the, was the pro-Soviet court appointed lawyer who screwed up the defense of this heroic dissident poet who, who, who later died uh, in the 80s. So he's just like the representation of the worst kind of homo Sovieticus who's now a pro-Russian minion and a, a direct link to the Kremlin who negotiates on behalf of the Russians. So he, he ran away when the war started. He was under house arrest. Uh, then he escaped house arrest, and then he was caught trying to get into uh, out of the country into Transnistria and picked up and frog marched in handcuffs. So I have no problem with a guy like that, uh, literally an enemy of the state, being kept uh, as a political prisoner. And his deputy in the party, a gentleman named Go- uh, Kozak, although maybe not a gentleman, he is back in Russia, a member of the Ukrainian parliament, uh, of elected in the last si- cycle going on Russian TV, calling for the Russian army to uh, attack uh, Ukraine even harder. You know, basically, when, when you have former members of this guy's party who are now back in Moscow, who are still members of Ukrainian parliament, 
te technically still MPs of, of this uh, uh, of this government. Although I, I don't know if the, the, the Ukrainian parliament voted to dissolve his uh, his mandate. It may have. I just may have missed the news. But he was basically an MP four months ago or five months ago in this guy's party. He's going on Russian TV back in Moscow calling for more war. These are not legitimate political uh, opponents within the system. I understand full well why the Ukrainians would want to liquidate this kind of, uh, and let's not use the word liquidate lightly, but to get rid of this kind of political force within their country. So are you confident that six months from now, Ukraine prevails in this war, uh, the Russians are either driven out or driven back, and there's a you know, the Ukrainian state is secure. Are you confident that it is a democratic pluralist state with, you know, civil liberties and Western values or or does it become a kind of uh, cult of, of Volodymyr Zelensky? First of all, uh, Ukrainians are never happy about anything. They're politically, they're like the French. They, they, they vote for a messiah who will save them and they're never happy with him two years later. Uh, I have seen the way all previous Ukrainian presidents have have uh, become very unpopular after uh, after just a couple of years, and uh, Zelensky was way on, uh, way on track to becoming a one-term mediocre uh, president who he had twenty-five percent approval ratings before the war started. Now they're like ninety-five percent. He's a mixture of Churchill and God. You know, I have no doubt that the political landscape of the country. Let's say the country wins the war in two months or three months or six months. The political landscape of the country will be completely trans transmogrified and transformed. There will be a completely new basis for politics. There will certainly be uh, early snap elections, which Zelensky will win with a huge mandate because he will have a tremendous, he will have a tremendous credit because of the way he, he and his government have fought this war. But uh, ultimately, things will go back to normal. And Ukrainians will, who are uh, characteristically Byzantine in their politics, will go back to sniping at each other and dividing, fighting for resources in the way that one should in a, in a, in a liberal polity. So I, I don't see a, a threat of a Zelensky cult after this. Certainly he will have a second chance in order to uh, put in a new agenda after the war, which he deserves for what he and his people have done. Absolutely. You sound quite confident in the health of Ukrainian democracy. Yeah, I do. I do think that, that there are still people in this country who, are, who will, even after this, will not want to start speaking Ukrainian, who will be happy to be more patriotic and will be happy to engage in a quicker Ukrainization process in the regions, who will still want some sort of Swiss-like cantonization, uh, I'm not talking about decentralization. I'm, I'm, I'm just talking about on the level of cultural politics, region to region. The regions really are different. The Ukrainians from one area to the other are very different. They're culturally, linguistically, psychologically different. They live different lives. They have, they have different values in, in literally different values in, uh, in the east and the west and in the south and the north. They're very different from region to region. And there will be room for a center-right patriotic Russophone party that looks after the economic interests of the Donbass and of South, Southeast Ukraine and of Nikolaev. There will be, there will be absolutely room for a very patriotic Russian speaking regional economic interest in terms of parties.
That, that is legitimate. And that, that is, in fact, the only kind of legitimate thing that you could say for Medvedchuk and his ilk is that they do actually represent real Ukrainian voters. And they, they do live in Ukraine. They do have passports. They have legitimate opinions. They have legitimate views. Uh, many, 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 if not most of those people are not going to be pro, pro, softly pro-Russian anymore. I think Ruski Mir, even here in Odessa, where, which is, you know, always transactional and, and always, uh, one step away from, from loyalty to the, to the centralized state and always has been, whether that centralized state was in St. Petersburg during the Russian Empire in Moscow during the Soviet Union or, or Kiev now. Even here, there are lots of people who no longer will have any kind of fidelity to quote unquote Russian cultural ideas of a Russian world, Ruskimir. So I'm, I'm hoping that just the economic interests of, of the regions and their own local particularities will be respected. But as long as, as, long as the, their representatives are patriotic, I don't see why that would be a problem. We are going to leave it there. Vladislav Davidson, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, yeah, I'm really, I'm really uh, happy that there's so much interest in, uh, back in the States. Uh, it's at a really important time. I really do believe that the, the, the fate of liberalism and liberal democracy in, in Europe and, and the quote-unquote Western world order is being decided here. And it's a great thing. It's a great thing that the Ukrainians have stood up for all of us and that they're, they're winning and that they're uh, showing us through their resilience and their values what our better angels are. Stay safe. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer, this episode is me, did it myself. You should, however, do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on all the socials. You know, talk about us at dinner parties. A lot of podcast operations have promotional departments, PR firms. We don't have any of that. We only have you. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.